Hello, and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast in which we watch a romantic comedy and tell you why whoever picked somebody to fall in love with chose the wrong person, the wrong character out of the movie. I am Jennifer. I am Samantha. (gasps) I am Sadie. You were spared. We don't have the soundboard in the version of Zencaster we're using today. I even took a deep inhale so that I could I could be prepared for when that would turn on, but it didn't come. (laughs) I will, however, be performing it live in the spirit of our uh, movie today. No, I will not. Um, We're talking about music and lyrics. Music and lyrics. Sadie, do you <laughs> music and lyrics? <laughs> the only thing holding me back from embracing the Lord of Darkness is music and lyrics. <laughs> from embracing Hugh Mungo Grant is music and lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> I literally forget every time we do a Hugh Grant movie that his middle name is Mungo. Oh, Hugh Mungo is always never it's just ready to surprise you again. You're welcome. <laughs> I am here to remind you always. <laughs> so but this is a movie we uh, we mentioned last week when we did Marry Me because it too is a rom com featuring a a pop star, although a pop star who's fallen on harder times than Cat Valdez. Let's say, um, shall I take it away? Shall I just shall I summarize us? You shall write those lyrics, baby. Tell us what Humongo is up to in this two thousand and seven romantic comedy. Hugh Mungo is named Alex Fletcher. In the 80s, he was in a British pop group called Pop, uh, stylized (laughs) capital P, lowercase l, capital P, exclamation point, which would have been a nightmare to write about. (laughs) (laughs) I would be in the front row of their concert. I See, love I feel like I would shit. not have been interested in their original run, but I definitely would be one of these screaming ladies at Alex Fletcher's performance at a state fair. <laughs> yeah, forget Beatlemania. Sadie wanted to be there in the 80s uh, when Alex Fletcher came to perform. Um, so basically, he was big in the 80s. The lead singer of the band went on to become like a megastar, but Alex is... Uh, just kind of like living off residuals and royalties and the occasional like, um, like gig at a high school reunion or an amusement park. Uh, he'll go kind of do little dances to his old songs and sing again. But he gets a big break when his, his mensch of a manager says, Hey, uh, this really hot new pop star, Cora Corman, played by Haley Bennett, uh, has a nostalgic attachment to pop and wants you to compete along with several other like vintage acts to write a song called A Way Back Into Love. And Alex is like, can't pass it up. But he only ever really wrote music. It was always Colin who wrote the eponymous lyrics. And the manager is like, it's no big deal. We'll get you a lyricist, whatever. They they get a like this <laughs> lyricist comic relief character who just like 
wants the lyrics to be like really nightmarish and edgy and like, I don't know, grim, which like wouldn't really make sense. You would just get like a four hire, like one of these like, like Swedish dudes who uh, like writes the music for every female pop star. Um, yeah, like Max Martin w- was still it- dominating all that in 2007, right? Like the tower yeah. of Swedish pop had not fallen yet then. They Swedish written a- American pop. <laughs> Excuse they do me. a cool parody of this in the uh, the NBC show uh, Girls Five Eva, which I recommend because like it's always been funny to me that like basically just like Swedish men have wrote like all of Britney Spears's music or like that kind of thing. Um, so, but I've rarely seen it like dramatized on screen. Anyway, while working with this lyricist who's not a good fit, enter Drew Barrymore, Sophie Fisher, kind of a bundle of rom-com stereotypes. She is like hypochondriac and clumsy and a little absent-minded. I think they try to deepen out and flesh out her character. We can talk about how successful or not they are later. But she is tasked with watering Alex's plants, and they kind of inadvertently discover that she is a really good lyricist. Um, And Alex is like, you have to help me write a song for the biggest pop star in the world. And for some bewildering reason, Sophie is like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Instead, I'm just going to tell my older sister uh, about you. Her older sister runs a weight loss chain. And that part of the movie <laughs> is not great. And your tone told us everything we need to know about that <laughs> to start yes. with. No one should ever Her have sister a is 70 Jenny calorie dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Or like whatever, the, didn't they say like well, their chicken dinner is only seventy calories? If you are having a seventy calorie dinner, you are you are not alive. You will faint. You are or eating celery. Serious harm and to your body. It's just painted brown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's so unfortunate it's because. Kristen Johnson is playing the sister and her comedic timing is so funny when they go to that, you know, Alex Fletcher's original concert and stuff. And it's just a real bummer that she was saddled with this as a career and most of her jokes are focused around it. Not good. Content yeah. warning for so, music and lyrics. Anyway, Alex, Alex tries to convince Sophie. He eventually takes something that she said about like a love autopsy and uh which sounds grim but turns it into a actually very sweet song performs it for Sophie and that uh convinces her to work with him and i uh, then they, there's a very lovely montage of several days of them writing words and lyrics throughout which time they kind of open up to each other alex about his uh kind of failed attempt at a solo career and sophie about her former English professor at the new school, Sloan Cates, um, basing a book off of her tryst with him and then like ruining her whole life, basically. Um, file that away. They write the song. It's great. Uh, it's really catchy. Cora loves it. Um, there's kind of like a middle chunk of the film where Sophie wants to have maintain like artistic integrity and control over the lyrics and alex is just so fucking happy to have a paycheck that he's like you can do whatever you want to it you can do culturally appropriative like gyrating dances uh to this song and i won't care one bit 
Um, but they kind of like punch their way through that, but not without kind of like the relationship going sour and both of them saying things to each other that they regret. Mostly Alex kind of like saying something very hurtful to Sophie of like, your professor was right about you. He took it over the line with that one. Kind of made me root against the happy ending at that moment. Yeah. But um, anyway, Sophie uh, goes anyway in kind of a babysitting capacity to the big concert at Madison Square Garden at which Alex and Cora are going to play the song. And then I really liked how they handled this. So they announced that Alex is going to perform a new song written by Alex Fletcher. And Sophie is like, oh, my God, they like stole credit for for my work. But lo and behold, Alex is singing a new song that he wrote, which is hard for him because he's not a great lyricist. And it's called Don't Write Me Off. And it's essentially um, begging Sophie to to take a second chance on him. Sophie does. She rushes backstage. Um, they perform A Way Back Into Love. It is tasteful. It doesn't have the weird dance number in front of it. And in closing credit scenes, we reveal that all of the characters you love have all of their dreams come true and all of the characters that we don't love like died in a, like a bus crash or something. They just um, kind of dole they out fates at the end, 80s movie style. Yeah. Also, yeah. all of the plants died because it is apparently endearing when rom-com ladies kill plants. Lol. Who can keep a plant alive? I certainly can't. Um, anyway, I love this movie, but I will table my feelings and thoughts to listen to both of you tell me your reactions slash histories or lack of histories with it. Who's going I first? will go first. Um, I I like this movie. I have only seen it like a handful of times. And I think part of that is just because I don't entirely love his character. Like, I just kind of find this iteration of Hugh Grant a little bit grating on my nerves. So that's why I don't revisit this as often. But I love the concept of it. And I think that this is one of those situations where, especially even though the characters have an age gap, it's not weird or creepy. And like the concept of it is like very much two people on equal footing, which is again, something that you don't often find in rom-coms. So I love it for that. And also the weight loss stuff kind of bothers me, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, So that is my history with this movie, but I did see this movie in theaters with my mom, as I have with most of the rom-coms that we talk about that came out in my lifetime. (laughs) Sometimes it's your dad. Sometimes it's dad. (laughs) But in this case, it was mom. What did your mom think of this movie? She loves this movie. She loves Hugh Grant, Hugh Mungo Grant. And I love your mom, so <laughs> it's it's a circle. A match somehow. made in heaven. <laughs> and she also thinks that all the, the weight loss jokes are like funny in the way that most middle-aged Midwestern moms do. So take that for what you will. Ladies who like lived through the low fat yogurt days of the 90s. And yeah. Oh, well, I'll go ahead and start with the worst point for me, which was the the weird weight loss stuff. And it, uh, 
in a way, it was sort of mild for 2007 in that they did not have a literal fat person on screen who they made the butt of a joke. But it's it's more like just disordered eating horrible jokes and like, oh, if I get fat, I'll lose my business jokes. And it's showing us a weird (laughs) plate full of like plasticky mashed potatoes. Yeah, it did not need that. They should have given the sister a different oddball career. (laughs) She could have done anything. In a different way. Let her be a pet groomer. Yeah, it, yeah. So that was and one of those that really prevalent. kind of glared out as yeah, <laughs> like they mentioned it, it like many ran through times. the whole thing, and yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that that was that was not not cool. Um, Jen, did you mm-hmm. say she should have been a pet groomer? Because that was going to be my uh, alternate. Are suggestion. we on a wavelength with that? Yeah, yeah. she should have been like a, like a take it even further. Have her be like a pet pedicurist or something. You know, <laughs> like. Yeah. So that was a poor choice on the part of the writers. And that is really, uh, it's funny to say that that is the thing that dates the movie most for me, considering it's about a, you know, a washed up 80s pop star and the music is so on point for the era. Um, but yeah, it's the, that Audie's fat phobia, the, it's like a particular flavor of fat phobia that existed in 2007. And that unfortunately, is yeah is prevalent as Sadie said in this movie but a small half step mm-hmm. forward from Maid of Honor where they like have the character oh. faint because she's drinking oh. water and cayenne pepper or something yeah and that was weirdly played for laughs instead of a tragedy it, uh, b- bizarre um and that is what yeah was was just that that was just the water we were swimming in at the time and uh, I think it's also connected to, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you can make the statement that, uh, you know, a living human's body is fat phobic, but the way that they had Cora Corman styled in those extreme low rise, uh, very, you know, just skinny, 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 like Paris Hilton in 2006 oh. level skinny outfits. Um, I did have a, that a was massive crush. <laughs> On Cora, though, like when I was eleven, like I would, I would go back and rewatch uh, her scenes. <laughs> you have, so wait, your first crush was on the cartoon giant lady, right? Yes, you, like from tall ladies who will look down upon you. Um, I don't know with kindness yes. or not, Sadie. I'm not certain, but. <laughs> Yes. But Cora Corman, yes. the, the actor who plays her is very pretty. And uh, she looks like astonishingly like Jennifer Lawrence at the age that she was she in does. this movie. Yeah. And also kind of like um, Kesha Hunter Schaefer, who plays me. Jules on Euphoria. They could play uh, sisters, the three of them. Uh, is she commits to I really like Haley Bennett's performance in this because you it simultaneously she has to be performing extreme vanity but she as a performer has to have no vanity to be doing some of the (laughs) ridiculous things and saying some of the things she's saying i thought great job playing kind of like an airheaded pop star Um, very much also that song that's like probably the the song that is like the bad song to show like how um, bad her music is is delight (laughs) my buddha's delight was one thing but the my body wants to bang um i I would actually bop to that. I could listen to that one. 
Slam. Slam. That was a good it wasn't. One. It was slam, not bang. I just said it wrong. Damn. So they it crashes had, that Dave Matthews song. I forget who they had <laughs> write the the Cora music. I I paid attention to the credits. I think they had like kind of more of a traditional like pop team and producers make Cora's music. But one of the reasons I love this movie and sort of my entry point into it is I was a weird New Jersey teenager listening to a group called Fountains of Wayne long before the song Stacy's Mom, Mom was ever on your radio. Uh, and that band was fronted by a guy named Adam Schlesinger, uh, who has done music for That Thing You Do, for Josie and the Pussycats, for the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Basically, like, when they need a song like Pop Goes My Heart, where it's like, we need a song that would believably be a hit in a certain style at a certain time. Like Hollywood called Adam Schlesinger and he was like, I got you. And uh, so I love Pop Goes My Heart, the song. It sounds ripped from the 80s. It doesn't sound like someone in the present day imagining an 80s song. It has just the right level of winking at like the tropes without it feeling too self-aware. And uh, Adam Schlesinger also did uh, Don't Write Me Off Just Yet and the big track Way Back Into Love. And I think all three songs are really great and they have that kind of personal authorial voice, at least the latter two. And I love them. But then I also find the movie really fascinating because it's like about the creative process almost as much as it is about like uh, falling in love. Like a while ago from that Beatles documentary, people were passing around that moment of like Paul cracking uh, uh, a song. I forget which one it was. Did either of you see that making the rounds? No, I just read people's Mm -hmm. comments on it on Twitter. Yeah, it's just like Paul like kind of jamming out and like eventually settling on like a riff that would later become like one of the most iconic, you know, Beatles songs of all time. And people just found it thrilling to watch. And I think movies often have a hard time like capturing that. Like, I I think they like to present the creative process as like a bolt of inspiration. Like, Like, you know, if they did that in this movie, suddenly. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Like Sophie would say like way back into love or something and they would like clear off everything off the top of the piano, like get out two pieces of paper and just like write it out frantically and then, you know, cut to this is number one on the radio. And I really love how much time this movie takes and luxuriates in just them like throwing lyrics back and forth, trying things, singing things, talking about how they want the bridge to sound. It doesn't get so in the weeds that it bores you, but it like captures some of that thrill and excitement of writing music. That's on in that vein. My, my favorite part of that was the little moment where Drew Barrymore is uh, telling him that like, Oh, she's had like an epiphany to change the word to corners of my mind instead of spaces of my mind, because there's more of a boundary to it. And it's more, you know, yeah. Yeah. Which is like the sort of stuff you say, not even sure if you're like fully making sense when you are like, it doesn't have to be music, but just talking about anything creative with someone you're collaborating with. And I don't know, I, 
I liked it. I also thought that like the relationship went surprisingly deep for a rom-com of this era. Like often the format is just like, they have a, a fight, there is a slight, they blow up at each other, and then they realize they love each other. And I thought some of their conversations with each other, like, actually were like, holy shit, did like a therapist write this? Because like, Alex, at one point is like, I kind of feel like you're hanging on to this like narrative of victimhood to give yourself an identity. And you're not sh- sure who you'd be if you let yourself get over Sloan. And you know, I I forget if Sophie, I think Sophie gives him a similar dressing down at some point, or at least I hope she does. But I was like, damn, this, uh, this has like actual layers. And they're talking about actual things about each other's characters, instead of it just being like an arbitrary miscommunication. Mm-hmm. Yes. And like Sadie pointed out, it was magnificent to see. Uh, I see now, Samantha, why this popped into your mind um, when we were talking about Marry Me last week. Because while I enjoyed Marry Me on a lot of levels too, it does seem very shallow after having watched this one that you had middle-aged people as the the couple in Marry Me, but it didn't really, besides just giving a little bit of lip service to Kat's past marriages and mentioning that Owen Wilson was divorced, it didn't really ever address how their pasts affected them or there wasn't there wasn't a point to them being the age that they were. Whereas, like Sadie said, yeah. there was an age gap in this relationship, but Drew Barrymore is solidly an adult. She's in her 30s and, you know, while he's in his, whatever his 40s are he's supposed to be here. And they both are dealing with their shit and how their past have affected them and trying to figure out how they're going to move forward from the specific point in life they're at now. So it's not like a, a new adult romance where you're just starting things off with no history or like, uh, or weirdly transplanting that onto older people, you know? Um, and I think that that is a, Oh, I was telling, I was telling the gals in our chat earlier today, <laughs> Justin watched this movie with me and pointed out, I'm always compiling uh, Sadie tropes in movies, the sweeping natural vistas with the swelling orchestral music and the bickering friends to lovers. And, you know, the, the stuff that uh, the elements that make Sadie like a movie. And Justin was like, wow, Samantha, Samantha really likes movies about confronting mortality when you're partway through. And, you know, I think he's on to something there. <laughs> wow. When you're seeing psychoanalysis, your, <laughs> your, your youth is behind you and you know that that's over and the path to the grave lies ahead, but you're not that close to it yet. So you can't just give up and you've got to figure out, you know, how to keep creating and making work. Yes. You know, getting open heart surgery at age 20 will will do this to a person is all say. I know I joke about being a grandma and feeling old, but I recognize that ostensibly I am midway through life. But psychologically, when something like that happens to you, like all of your adult life kind of feels like the second act uh, you're having to like exert yourself to like make work. It doesn't feel like, oh, I, I launched. It felt like, oh, I like, I got the second chance and now I have to like do something with it. Um, I wish I had been a pop star before my open heart surgery, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I also just like have 
really, this definitely isn't Hugh Grant at his finest. I think he's doing some of his best acting you know? now, but I appreciate him more in hindsight, seeing what he can do now. I actually am going to be the dissenter from both of you here to say that I don't think I have ever liked Hugh Grant more in a movie than this one. Oh. Whoa. Even like about a boy? I don't think I watched well, it. Well, about a boy. boy, he's kind of an Definitely asshole. Notting Hill. I, <laughs> I, I think he plays well, assholes like the performance well. without liking the character. I, first of all, Samantha, I thought you knew it's, me. I literally can't. If I don't like a character, then I think the actor is doing a terrible job. Um, but, oh, um, can you guys still hear me? Sure. I was saying that this was my favorite Hugh Grant performance. And Samantha said, not even about a boy. And then Sadie said, you were that he talking was an about asshole. how you can't, yeah, yeah, you can't like a movie if. Or no, a character. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good point, past Sadie. Um, yeah, I fully, I, if I dislike the character, then I will like have a personal vendetta against the actor, like for all time. Like, um, yeah, I will say though, I think my favorite Hugh Grant performance, um, excluding Paddington 2, would have to be Notting Hill, <laughs> even though I in general dislike that movie because I don't like the relationship itself and I don't like Julia Roberts in it or her character, but I like him like as a person. And those are my two cents on Notting Hill, a movie that we're not covering right now. (laughs) (laughs) Hugh Grant really is a rom-com icon. And I think this was making me feel a little wistful in spite of some of the, the, 2007-ness that wasn't so good about the movie. This was really amazing to see two actors who are primarily known as rom-com superstars go up against each other. Like, sometimes that doesn't work. Here it really did. Going in, I was sort of like, Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore together? Like, do I see it? But... Their timing and the dialogue and their little, their facial acting and just the way their energy was together was incredible. And yeah, it actually made me miss the days of big rom-coms and big rom-com stars. And they just seem to be having so much fun. Yeah, Sadie, this you're winning me over. You're winning me over. <laughs> but I, I think that that's why I like Hugh Grant so much in this because he is such a, you know, he's got like a, a twinkle of mischief in his eye, but he's such a curmudgeonly personality in so many things. Like the the Virgo-ness jumps out really strongly. Like you can tell that's a lot of earth sign. And he uh, he is, you know, he's working that pop hip in this movie. He is like having fun in the, with this ludicrous character and that horrible necklace he's wearing and his, you know, 80s pop star in the 2000s shoes. And I just found it really fun oh, and charming. The necklace. So, yeah. <laughs> So the the chemistry between the leads, and again, that's another thing Samantha loves in a movie, is snappy writing that's not dull or boring or over-explains things, but that yes. forwards the plots and the relationships. And the way- They talk a lot in this they movie. They talk a they- lot. And the way Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore volley that dialogue back and forth between each other is so appealing. Yes, this is what we're missing now that the age of- 
uh, actors <laughs> seems to be <laughs> over, or at least has moved into a tiny little niche of the industry, right? Is like, if you have two people who can act, you can have a movie of just them talking and, you know, one or two big no. set pieces and... <laughs> it's entertaining. Now it's like, you know, Instagram models are the new actors. And so the movies have to have every scene have something big, huge, ridiculous over the top happen to try to like hold your attention and distract <laughs> from the fact that it's not really any fun to watch the people that they've cast just like have a conversation with each Samantha, other. Samantha, you're giving me flashbacks to he's all that. <laughs> That immediately came to mind. Yeah. It, like, and you can tell that, like, it's, it's just the industry, like, adapting to this new reality of, like, realizing that, yeah, I don't know. They do, like, a screen test with these people, and the director is like, well, that sucked. Uh, what if we had a helicopter uh, crash into the pool and give everybody free Taco Bell, you know? <laughs> I would have loved to see Hugh Grant as Alex Fletcher's face if a helicopter had crashed into a pool during the party scene and someone offered him free Taco Bell as a sort of apology for that incident. <laughs> but, but like, Jen, I really do. I think I don't know that I buy like a, the romantic chemistry so yeah. much, but certainly like the verbal like repartee is there. Like I love the scene at the bakery when she's like, I have to like have breakfast if I'm going to keep writing. And they like, that's where they kind of have the music versus lyrics debate. And, um, or like, or no, no, cause she slights pop music, right? In that yeah. moment, she's like, oh, it's not a novel. It's just like a pop song or something. And he's like, no novel is ever going to make you feel as good as like, I forget which iconic song he pulls out, but it's a moment where you're like, and Paul yeah. McCartney and yeah, some of them. <laughs> it's true. Like, uh, you know, as, as a as a first time novelist, I'm under no misconception that a book would ever make anybody feel as instantly, immediately, full body happy as like um, a really great song. As pop goes, my heart. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we should replace books with pop music. Is what I'm saying. That but actually, no, I that thought, was like, a really nice scene too to see him because we've seen him in sort of this slightly degraded position in the movie leading up to then you know he's not on top of his career he's taking he's he's very well aware of his public image or lack thereof at this point and is kind of taking it on the chin when he's getting these offers to do like a terrible washed up 80s star boxing reality show you know he he's aware of his situation and he's not um, over proud of himself, you know, he, he knows he's performing at carnivals and state fairs or whatever. But that moment really goads him to stand up for his art form and his own work and, and what he loves about it. And that was beautiful. Yeah. And how often in today's rom-coms do you have two people talking about the virtues and merits of different artistic mediums while also advancing their chemistry as a couple forward? <laughs> <laughs> 
it's just uh, not often. It takes me back. You know, um, I think of some of the new rom coms that we've watched. The one that keeps popping back up in my mind as um, uh, an example of of a high bar is the the one that I keep accidentally calling Heartbreak Hotel. The the Broken Hearts Gallery. Um, yes. That little gal in that she could be a rom com fucking superstar on the level of Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant if we were in a good timeline. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like she I feel like she also has a similar vibe to Drew Barrymore, who I love in rom-coms because of her very like spunk. She has like a spunk to her that doesn't feel manic pixie dream girl. It feels just like I am a full-bodied human person and I have spunk, you know, rather than kind of like a, a 2D version of that that seems like very like wish fulfillment, you know? I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like Drew Barrymore and um, that actress whose name is slipping through my fingers as I speak, uh, I think they do that really like well. Ger- Geraldine, right? It's her first name. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I used to have a pet society character named Gerald. Damn. And Geraldine is The complicated is a very cool webs name. we weave in life. <laughs> say though I what I think prevents me fully from loving this movie Die Hard is because not the movie Die Hard from Die Hard loving this movie is <laughs> the fashion choices just for some reason they're they're so prominent in, in this movie like it, it feels oh like oh my god people- that um the formal cuffed shorts over tights thing was, I, again, talk about horrifying flashbacks. I never remembered that that was a thing that I had done until I watched this movie. And I would like to apologize to everyone for my past uh, mistakes. <laughs> well, the skinny scarves alone. I mean, my God. <laughs> like, I just, I, I mean, I appreciate that they really thought that they were they were doing it. I feel like in 2007 feels like everyone was fighting an uphill battle of fashion and everyone was losing, <laughs> but no one knew it. <laughs> like, that's just it was what it the feels last like. year. <laughs> Right, we were heading into the final years of the the W. Bush presidency, and yeah, what a chaotic time! It had like the the low rise cuts from the early aughts, but then so many unnecessary accessories like the skinny scarves, and you know, yeah, the, the formal waistcoat shorts as well. Which I I carried into the vestibules of the waistcoat. I carried over into like ninth grade. <laughs> But like, (laughs) it, it just the the moment where after they have sex for the first time, and she sees him out on the balcony, and he turns around in those low rise jeans and that little leather necklace. I was like, "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) the leather (laughs) necklace. I okay, I think that really is a danger. Any aging musicians who are listening to this <laughs> podcast should beware that <laughs> if you are wearing a leather necklace, and I hate it's to say this right. because it's not. I don't, right. Yeah, yeah. Maybe just rethink it, especially. Yeah, 
before your Hugh Grant's age. Yeah. I do think there there's an interesting reading of this film now that Hugh Grant has had kind of a late career renaissance. Like this is kind of weirdly foreshadowing a reckoning that Hugh Grant has like talked about publicly about like trying to get back into like acting and realizing he had to kind of change things up or that he had I don't know there's like a parallel there of like how formulaic like wham music sounds and then like you know the pressure to either just be like because Hugh Grant could have easily just lived off of the nostalgia for rom-coms and never really done anything else. And then, you know, when he passes away one day, we'll be like a uh, Hugh Grant uh, rom-com, rom-com actor. Guy. And we'll probably still and think now, that. But no, like now he's done Hugh all Grant, this Paddington 2. Paddington 2. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, sorry to imagine your death, Hugh Grant. But he's also done... Um, the, uh, Jer- he played Jeremy Thorpe in this miniseries called A Very English Scandal, which I yes. really recommend. Like, uh, and he's just, I love now he's kind of taking like the narcissism that he always kind of let shine through his like little befuddling, charming rom com characters and realizing, oh, I can like take that and do really like interesting like dynamic like uh sometimes villainous stuff with it and have a lot of fun and also people like my acting better like he's been just getting raves for like um for basically everything he's done since he stopped doing rom-coms which (laughs) yeah yeah I was kind of. I, always, I actually looked up Hugh Grant's age. That's that's how I know that he's a Virgo sun sign from the other day. But do you do you guys know how old Hugh Grant is right now? Mm, like sixty. The there's a there's a he he's was sixty one. Yeah, he was born in nineteen sixty. Yeah. yeah, he's gosh, he's like almost the same age as my parents. Like really close. <laughs> And Samantha is going to be unhappy about us uh, airing this and may attempt to mute me. But Sadie and I earlier were discussing whether or not Hugh Grant can now qualify as a pop pop. <laughs> the pop pop oh, table, it opens up. <laughs> this reveals who the true fans are and who the Johnny Come Latelys will be because we discussed the pop pop trope low probably 70 episodes ago. (laughs) We had to stop talking about pop pops for the sake of Samantha's heart. But I think that she will approve of my saying that Hugh Grant is certainly a curmudgeon, but I just don't think that he has the proper aura to him to count as a pop pop. There's not like a sense of like mustiness and mothballs and butterscotch candies about him. To really constitute a pop-pop moment. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, he's Um, not stuffy enough. Did you you know that Hugh Grant is in a Dungeons and Dragons movie that's already in post-production? I did not. (laughs) That is his next project. (laughs) Is there any information about Mungo's character? (laughs) <laughs> there, there is no information, plot undisclosed. There are cast members, Chris Pine, Sophia Lillis, uh, Reggie, Reggie Jean Page from Bridgerton, ah. Michelle Rodriguez. Oh, shit. She'll be a warrior for sure. <laughs> uh, those are the ones I recognized. Only, 
only one character is listed as having a name. And so I don't know if it's a mistake, but someone named Clayton Grover is playing Jarnathan, which like <laughs> Jonathan with an R. No. <laughs> Jarnathan is going to be a career breaking role for Clayton here. <laughs> Calling it now. <laughs> But I'm having a hard time picturing is, I mean, I don't know. He surprised us in Paddington too, but having a hard time picturing Hugh Grant in the D&D He's going to be like um, Christopher Lambert as Raiden back in the old school Mortal Kombat movie, right? Like he's going to have to be some wizardly, uh, uh, I don't know. He's probably going to be a villain, don't you think? Yeah. I don't I know. Can imagine I'm fascinated him, to see. <laughs> I could imagine him being in this Dungeons and Dragons movie more than I believed Ben Affleck or Matt Damon being in the last duel. <laughs> <laughs> Which, okay, by the way. He's playing a villain. <laughs> oh, yeah, that tracks. Which, by the way, last duel, I had to tap out around 45 minutes in because they were talking about way too many back taxes. It was, I hate it. Sadie, I I watched The Last Duel and I loved it. I'm sorry. It was was really great. What? (laughs) It was fantastic. Bonus episode. Adam Driver was good. Oh, that's why you like it. Because Adam Driver is in it. Ben Affleck was a a great blonde villain. And I hate it. That's so weird. Villain. (laughs) I just saw those bangs on the wigs and the publicity stills, and I was like, "No thanks." Yeah. So that's that's my opinion on the last of it all. (laughs) Yeah. No, Matt Damon is supposed to be kind of like a prig in that movie of just and like he's really great at playing prigs. Like it. I I love me some Ridley Scott. Uh, when when Ridley Scott's able to rein it in, which he did not do on the Alien prequels, um, <laughs> what a fantastic filmmaker! Anyway, Hugh Grant, I'm picturing him. It, like I would love him to be just the most like uh, like charismatic, charming, self-effacing, uh, stuttering dungeon master in <laughs> in existence. One could, uh, I suppose, if one wanted to enter one, enter a cave if that was what one oh, desired wait. to do. <laughs> so are they playing I, are they playing like people who are playing D&D and then they're also playing their characters or is this just fully set like in the world of Dungeons and Dragons? I wonder. I kind of feel like they would have to go meta, right? They're not just going to try to create a new fantasy universe. I feel like if they did something similar to like Princess Bride it could be kind of fun. Like where you have kind of like yeah. the narrative framing of like the grandpa, i.e. Hugh Mungo Grant. You know, I don't know. Who that would be scary. so fun you know to mean? see Hugh Mungo, to see Hugh Grant go from like Samantha saying like the stuttering, like not too confident, like IRL uh, dungeon master. And then in game universe, he's like this badass sure speaking like wearing a cloak wizard or some shit like that would be really fun but like community kind of did this right Uh, i don't know if either of you saw those episodes of community i guess they only showed around the table they didn't like cut to in universe which would be cool but jumanji was also like this kind of right um maybe i don't know i'm a little wary of them just doing it totally straight faced because like 
the last time yeah. someone tried to just launch their own original fantasy universe, we ended up with like one and a half Narnia movies or however many they <laughs> ended up actually making before giving up. Damn. Did you guys ever read any like- of those? Is That's Dungeons and Dragons universe, right? With like Drizdoward and the Dark Elf and all that shit. I used to read those in high school. And I had a friend who idolized, a then friend, I should say, who idolized that oh. Raceland mage way too much. That was bad news. Should have known. Oh, Margaret I, Weiss and Tracy Hickman. The, the, um, the Dragonlance books. Sorry, Sadie. <laughs> no, no, no. I will this mute is myself. My brief moment will to say. Reminisce. That I greatly enjoyed the recent, like the Jumanji movies, like the two that came out with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I unironically absolutely love those movies. And I think that if they did something similar with the Dungeons and Dragons movie, it would be it would be fire. It would be really good. <laughs> I'm in. I was intrigued by because so in the second one, right, Sadie, like it's like other characters playing like that like Dwayne the Rock Johnson is playing an avatar of a player who's playing his character. Is that how so it works? So like there's act so it's actually like a teenager is playing like Dwayne the Rock Johnson is an avatar for a teenager who like is in the real world. So they're like video game avatars. That's amazing. I'm into that. So it's very I fun. Like and Jumanji. I feel like that's the only way that like Dwayne the Rock Johnson could like be palatable to me is because he is so over the top in that movie because he is not a real person. So it, it like is fine. <laughs> I wonder if they'll do similar. I sent you both uh, the set photo where someone spotted Hugh Grant in costume, but like, it's such a big cast and it's a mix of like younger people. And then like, you know, Michelle Rodriguez, Hugh Grant, Chris Pine, that I'm wondering if it will be like the, the young actors are playing the game and the old actors are their, their characters or something like that. (laughs) Forgotten realms. Yes. Oh my God. And I love draconian measures. And then that one about like the Isle of the Elves, where it talked about all the D&D elven history. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry that I let us down this, but no, I'm not sorry. These are the kind of detours we love around here. Should we, should, should uh, Drew Barrymore go for Sloan Cates? Let's, let's talk about the other guy. Oh, No, Sloan Cates. That was also a little bit strange in a 2007 way that they introduced something as heavy as uh, this, her professor leading her into a sexual relationship and then dumping her and then writing a book uh, disparaging her character with, you know, a thinly veiled, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's fiction, but it's it's Drew Barrymore. And then it becomes a bestseller and then they're going to make movies out of it. And then everybody's advice to her is just like, get over it. <laughs> Which I mean, I guess is all you could do in that situation. But I did think that that was a little bit callous of Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore's character's sister and, you know, so on. That was a really delightful scene, even though it did not end well for them uh, when they attempted to confront him in the restaurant, though. Um, Like Samantha said, the romantic chemistry between... 
Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant, maybe not a thousand percent sold on that in this movie, but just their chemistry as two people who interact well together and like being around each other is astounding. And that <laughs> that scene was really great, I thought. Yeah, yeah. I I cannot I cannot mount a defense for Sloan Kate's contra the purpose of our podcast. Maybe uh, she and the divorced manager can get together. Is the manager divorced? The manager is divorced. He states multiple times. And as you said earlier, he really is a minch. He was great. I love the manager. He was going to be my top suggestion for other guy. Yeah, like she can continue being a lyricist. He represents her and they fall in love. Yeah, like after after Alex Fletcher makes that crack that Sloan Cates was right about her, maybe... She actually should never forgive him for that, but she should go on to become a wildly successful lyricist managed by the manager, and then they can fall in love. Yes. Sadie, do you have any uh, any other pairings to suggest? Drew, ba- did we, Drew Barrymore with Cora? Hear me out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought yes. about that one, but I was like, is Cora too young? A How summer winter romance, but not between <laughs> Drew Barrymore and oh, Hugh right Grant. in the heart, but- Sadie. But- <laughs> Cora and Drew Barrymore. I I think that Cora in this is canonically like she is like in her twenties, um. So it's fine. Yeah. But I think that I think that Drew Barrymore would feel very soothed by Cora's youthfulness, and I think that it would be it would be an interesting relationship. Don't know if it would be a long term one, but I think it would. Really liven them. I think it would liven up Drew Barrymore's life. It would give her a really invigorating once in a lifetime romance. And then for Cora, I think that it would really like sober her up emotionally and really kind of like mine herself to actually experience deeper emotions. So that is my pitch. (laughs) Drew Barrymore was straight with her about the artistic merits of her, her work. So Drew Barrymore might have put Cora on a, yeah, like leveled up her creative output. I would love like a like 65 year old Drew Barrymore still writing lyrics for Cora of like, my body wants to slam, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) like, uh, just kind of like getting to like, yeah, have a girlfriend who also like captures the youthfulness that you write about. There's layers there. Um, I want to see that movie. It's like, uh, thank you. I know. Can you please forgive me? Slash music and lyrics. Um, I don't know if either of you saw that one. Melissa McCarthy playing the lesbian writer who like forges stuff. Anyway, um, <laughs> ah, Sadie, I'm good. into the pairing. Thank you. I endorse it. I ship it. Anybody want to enter a torrid romance with the uh, the original dark lyricist who wants young women to sing about being bad witches? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he, I love that they showed him at the concert at the end, just like rolling his eyes. Yeah. Deeply upset. He, uh, he mock puts a gun to his own head or something, right? Like he, and yet he's there attending the concert. He's sitting out in the audience. He bought a ticket. Like (laughs) my good, my good man. 
what are you doing? Oh, you know who would be another great person to date? And if Drew Barrymore is not going to get with the manager, then he should definitely continue to pursue his date at the restaurant who was so kind that not only did she overlook the horrible rudeness of being interrupted after being asked about her life and run off on, but she traded and gave her dress to Drew Barrymore so that she could look better in her attempt to confront Sloan Cates. That lady is a gem. Somebody needs to snatch her up. Yeah. Whatever happened to her? I guess <laughs> that was I it. wonder if that was a deleted scene scenario yeah. or something. She walked off in later. Drew Barrymore's clothes and she was gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, well, I think we've got some strong some strong pairings. Um, what else should we talk about? I, I know Sadie has got a heart out soon. I wanted to leave time. Um, Ooh, the plant thing killed me a little bit. I have recently developed a hardcore succulent obsession. So I did scream oh, out Jen, loud at the part where Drew Barrymore is talking about distracted about something else and just dumping an entire watering can on top of a beautiful jade plant, which I really hope was plastic and that they did not do that to a real plant for the sake of this movie. However, I, at least they're killing plants instead of fish as a charming thing. Like, wasn't that in, uh, was that Happiest Season? Which one was that supposed to be? Where, yeah. Oh, anyway, but yeah. Wait, just- do they kill fish? Oh yes, Dan Levy like murders fish. <laughs> yeah. Watch Dan Levy jump into the aquarium, wrap his arm <laughs> <laughs> His hands around. <laughs> Did you say harpoon, Sadie? Yeah. <laughs> I don't like fish fish murder being treated as comic relief, but if Dan Levy had jumped fully into a fish tank and harpooned the goldfish, I would accept that as necessary I'm for great cinema. <laughs> Dan Levy at like a red lobster and he's slowly just like, or not a red lobster, somewhere he's like sharpening chopsticks during the entire <laughs> eating experience. And then he just randomly run ups and jumps into the aquarium and like throws his little <laughs> chopstick. So- <laughs> he should date Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock in Venom. They can oh. join the polycule yeah. in Venom. Just as himself. <laughs> Like Dan yes. Levy and Eddie Brock <laughs> and Venom. I really hope that in Venom 3, they have like Venom has like a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a partner and Eddie Brock also has one and they have to like yes. negotiate time spent as whoever to spend time with their respective people. Absolutely. They need to make the polyamory explicit in Venom. Like obviously like Eddie and Venom are primary, but yes, I want to see them now negotiate their expanding romantic relationships with other entities. A polycule? Yes. I don't know what a polycule <laughs> is. And at this point, I, I'm too afraid to <laughs> <laughs> You've said it on this podcast like 17 times. <laughs> That's why she's afraid to ask now. <laughs> You know, um, that one uh, part in the show New Girl, where one of the characters, Nick, he's like, I'm not convinced that I know how to read. I think I just know a lot of words. That's me kind of understanding the base concept for polycule Uh, and queer platonic and... (laughs) 
<laughs> but I don't. But I don't know. I know, but I don't know. Well, we. Samantha, correct me if I am wrong here, but Sadie, to the best of my knowledge, a polycule is the entire group of people who are involved in relationships in a polyamorous situation. Like two people could be dating the same person and not dating each other, but they are still part of one another's polycule. Yeah. A polycule is a group of trans women living in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Easy definition. Uh, Yeah. A polycule. I see. A group of trans people living in Oakland or Brooklyn, one or the other. No, uh, so uh, a D&D yeah, group that's my understanding too. <laughs> yes. yes. Hugh Grant will play <laughs> the, the nucleus of the D&D polycule <laughs> slash villain. Um, that is a previously yes, unsaid I sentence. Am- like, I don't think that anyone in the history of every everything has ever said Hugh Grant will be the <laughs> nucleus of the D&D polycule. <laughs> polycule. And so also, not how polycules are D&D groups. The but- average medieval peasant, such as in all right. So by some theorem named after some ancient Greek guy, we understand that not all polycules are D&D groups, but all D&D playing groups are polycules. Yes. The rectangle uh, square <laughs> problem. Yeah, I, I'm. Truth be told, I have no experience in the world of polyamory, but I think Jen's definition of polycool rings true with, uh, with folks that I know. Yeah, it's like some people who are polyamorous are like kind of unsigned free agents, but then a polycool is when a group of them are partnered with enough other polyamorous people to create its own distinct nation state <laughs> with. <laughs> Uh, bylaws, <laughs> shared expenses, and I a chore I wheel. Saw, um, um, a post that was like, uh, every person in Seattle is just in one polycule. <laughs> like the entire city. <laughs> of that was like is a classic polycule. onion one. Samantha, you didn't even know you were in a polycule. Ah, you are. I've escaped. <laughs> I have a force field around me. Um, I give music and lyrics starring Hugh Mungo Grant and Drew Mungo Barrymore. Uh, four out of five. Uh, four out of five popped hips. Ah! Again, I was gonna, I was gonna give it pop hips. Let me think. For me, it's an all timer. <laughs> I also give this movie four out of five slams of Cora Gorman's body. Yeah, it was it was really nice. And uh, although the um, the fat phobia does not hold up well, and in fact, I would say did not be acceptable. Whatever, it was bad when it came out. It's bad now. It sucks, and I really wish that that weren't in there marring the movie because otherwise I greatly enjoyed it. And it was a nice, light, fun thing to watch during a heavy week in history. Sometimes your body just wants to slam, you know? And when that happens, and pop, put music and lyrics (laughs) in your DVD player. Exactly. What's Sadie's rating scale and number going to be? I will give it 3.85 out of five uh, uh, skinny scarves. Because you can give it a three. 
It's okay to give it a three. But I'm giving it a 3.85. Am I not allowed, Samantha? Is this not a tax? It felt like maybe you were trying to, uh, like, get close to our scores. Like, you felt pressure to come up or something. Or maybe I overestimate the amount of influence Jen and I If she wanted to give it a three but felt pressured, she would have given it a 3.25. But a 3.85, that's genuine. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) Sadie, please continue. Hear me out, my scale. So I love the base concept, but the issues that I have with it that prevent it from being a four out of five is just because the fashion choices hit me harder than I think it hit Jen and Samantha. And also I do have to just give it a little (laughs) bit less of a bump just because the weight stuff was quite annoying in a way that I'm just not really sure what they ever thought it was adding or that it was ever funny. Um, but those are my, and also the leather necklace really, like I screamed out loud in my, in the, in my living room when I saw that, but I like the base concept. It's great. I love when you have, as Samantha has said, two really talented actors, like sitting down and talking. That's like the core of what I love about rom-coms is I feel like that space, that genre, at least it used to, it was really focused on emotions and like two characters talking because you have to talk to fall in love. Well, some, uh, the kissing booth would beg to differ, but in general, you have to talk to fall in love. And I think that rom-coms do that. And I think that this movie does that really well. And that's, that's it. Briefly, I would like to make a note about the fashion choices in this movie. One of the few things that does hold up is Drew Barrymore's hair, which looked amazing throughout this movie, pulled up and worn down and however she wore it. And you know, that was just the wildest thing last year when that psyop about middle parts came up trying to divide millennials and Gen Z because it was like, (laughs) everybody's worn center parts forever, man. Look at Drew Barrymore rocking it throughout this movie. Strange. And she's Gen XSL. Yeah. Bots (laughs) programmed to to create generational warfare. Uh, Jen, what kind of songs should people ask us to write? Well, people should ask us to... God, I don't know. What songs are we good at writing? Songs Sorry. about Mushroom Wells. <laughs> songs about Mushroom Wells. Well, that's all Corey. <laughs> I was going to say, and ask us to write hyper-specific niche songs of, you know, uh, mimicking pop hits from certain decades, but I don't know that we have Adam Schlesinger's skills. Um, also, I respected the parts where Hugh Grant sang in his own shitty voice in this movie. That was amazing. I'll, I'll bump my score up by yeah. a 0.17 for that, uh, just for the... the st- ah, <laughs> canceling out Sadie's leather necklace. Not quite. Close, <laughs> but not fully. Anyway, <laughs> people should leave us five of five stars or whatever the top rating is on whatever platform where they listen to this podcast if they enjoy it. And if you do not enjoy it, then maybe you should make a more fulfilling use of your time than listening to this entire episode to hear me say this. <laughs> and if you would like to talk to us, we yeah, are on Twitter you. at <laughs> Look, if you're here with uh, uh if you're okay, look, if if we are if wrong you're here, about your family. <laughs> Samantha is Vin Diesel now and <laughs> 
<laughs> and if it truly, if we ever say something that is is wrong, if we have, have borked the definition of polycule, if we say something that truly bothers you or that we need to learn and be informed about, please let us know. But if you just criticize because you don't want to hear three people um, just shooting the shit about you know, freely associating about whatever comes to their mind while discussing these movies, then please just don't leave us a rating and mar our stars and make us feel bummed out for about 30 seconds. And if you would like to talk to us, we are on Twitter at YSSTOG, or you can send us longer form emails, which we rarely check. But when we do, we get really excited to see that somebody sent us one at YSSTOGpodcast at gmail.com. And most excitingly, you can help support us paying to stream all of these movies at our patreon.com slash YSSTOG, which gets you access to our Discord server where we talk about even more random shit that springs to our mind while we watch all these movies. And then there are increasing rewards where Sadie makes you cool playlists and stuff, and you can even choose a movie for us to discuss. Ahem, ahem. Ahem, ahem, ahem. I would like to thank our lovely, wonderful Patreons. Logan, Logan Mayonnaise, Andrew, Althea, Xenalon, Sharon, Justin, Evan, Liz, Brittany, Ace, Mara, Raimi the Void, Heartleaf, Ave with Teeth, Hadas, Ryan, Maddie, and Abby. We love you all so much. Hearing your names is like music and lyrics to our ears. <laughs> <laughs> 